What's your favorite song? Oh, that's too hard. Might be Fire, actually. Sort of a little uh, less well-known. I, lo- I like The River. I like Reason to Believe. That's up there. Johnny 99. Yeah, I've got too many. Look, I've been to see The Boss 11 times, so um, very hard for me to choose. You're almost a Jersey boy at heart. I think my favorite song is Thunder Road. Yeah, it's up there. I'm totally with it's you. definitely up there. Except roll down the window and let the wind blow back your hair. That's it, Frankie. Sing. Well, the night's busting open. Those two lanes will take us anywhere. Damn, that's such a good song. Well, we've got David Mercer, ladies and gentlemen, of LMAX Group, the FX and crypto trading platform exchange operator. Super excited to have you back on the show to talk about the ongoings in the market and to get you to opine and pontificate on what you're looking at out in the market. Good to be with you, Frank. Great to be with you. And of course, we're, this episode is extra special because we have Ryan Weeks, one of our newest contributors to the block over there on the other side of the pond with David. They're not in the same room, but maybe they are in spirit. Anyway, we've got a lot to talk about. There's some new momentum in the Bitcoin market as of late. We're, uh, I think we're still up above 11.5. I haven't checked this morning, um, unfortunately. Whether or not we're, we're, we're still up in 11.5 territory, there's still there seems to be some new momentum with firms like uh, Square and Stone Ridge uh, recently allocating a portion of their treasury to uh, Bitcoin, and it seems like this is the new, the new fad. So I want to start there, um, David. It was something I was, I was wondering um, in preparing for this call. We've had so many conversations where I'm asking you, are the hedge funds getting in? How many hedge funds are getting in? Which hedge funds are trading on? LMAX Digital or, or elsewhere. And now I feel like there's a new question, which is, are normal corporates coming to you or coming to some of your counterparties, since you, you, know, you guys are, are an aggregator of liquidity, are they looking to, as part of some sort of treasury allocation strategy, set aside some of their balance sheet to Bitcoin? I'd say it's a trickle, not a flood. But look, all the, everything you see you know, with the likes of microstudies, that's all helpful. It's good PR for the asset class. I think it's inevitable. There was a report came out yesterday from a well-known asset manager that was saying most treasurers, most funds should be looking and allocating 1% to 3% um, of their portfolio. I think that's the case. I've been saying that for the past few years. People always say, David, well, how exposed are you? I say I'm very exposed because I run LMAX Digital. Um, I'm basically exposed to, to capital markets. But in terms of everyone's portfolio, I think we've got to start at the sort of 1% to 3% range. I think every financial advisor on the street would probably say the same now. And then from there, it only goes up. What you saw PR-wise was that was someone allocating 90% of their balance sheet to Bitcoin. They could be right, they could be wrong. I wouldn't suggest that to um, everyone and everyone's pension fund, but certainly they're starting to look at it. You've got to, you've got to remember the, the macro environment we live in. 
the seemingly interminable QE, um, there's going to be an just inflation for the foreseeable. Where would you park your funds? And what would say about the crypto space, certainly about Bitcoin, is it's shown amazing resilience in one of the most challenged years we've ever had in capital markets. Yeah. And I think that's maybe what's been moving the needle, this this macro backdrop that is unlike anything we've we've really ever seen, right? Agreed. Health crisis that's that's matched with a an economic crisis. And we've talked about on this show plenty of times the degree to which this crisis has illuminated things about the underlying economy that have always been there. And and one of those things have been maybe the value of at, at the very least, um, you know, DLT technology, but a high level fintech and cryptocurrencies and the rest. So what else do you think is, do you think there's anything else that's maybe underpinning this momentum that aside from maybe the macro picture that's helping prices? I think it's all, everything is moving in the right direction. We shouldn't be impatient. You know, in the world of capital markets, this is still very new. We're still at the development phase, not even at the growth phase. But most other capital markets are at the growth and maturity phase, if you, if you, if you like. So, you know, what's happening, you're seeing greater adoption with grown-up institutions, you know, across the banks, the brokers, the funds. Everyone is starting to look at DLT, as you say. And then you're having more banks entering the space, so it's easier to get access to the marketplace. And that's the key to unlocking anything. If you go back to where I started my career early in in emerging markets, it was very, very hard to access the marketplace. So only a few of the large banks could access Eastern Europe or uh, a Asian products before you even t- started talking about LATAM. So it was very hard to access it. Now it's relatively easy. You can go to any fund, a bunch of exchanges, and you can get access to those markets. That market access is is key, and it will be the banks and the like who will provide that market access. And then likewise, the last key will be credit. And everyone, there's a lot, bunch of smart guys out there who are looking at how we can ease the credit into the marketplace. So what do I mean by that? It's the large corporates, it's the pension funds, it's the asset managers. They don't necessarily want to take the credit risk of Hujima Flip exchange in offshore jurisdiction, but they want access to the asset class. They want market access and they'll be able to do that via banking solutions. And down the line, you know, there's some smart ideas coming out about um, Real audited stable coins. I'm not so sure about the uh, central bank digital currencies because, in my opinion, uh, they're not really crypto. But all of that eases the market access. So I think everything's moving in the right direction. The resilience of Bitcoin itself has helped. And the more chatter we have around the place about DeFi, the more we spread the word, the more likely you're going to have this adoption and these rallies you've seen. So look, I think the future is bright for everyone in the crypto space. It's going to transition cap- the capital markets landscape in the next decade for that, I'm sure. We just would all, we all expect it to happen this year, but just know it will happen in the next decade. 
Uh, I want to get weeks in here with a question, but first, the one thing that's been surprising to me is the degree to which the market has been shrugging off some more negative elements. Um, I'm thinking uh-huh. specifically of the DOJ CFTC cases against the founders of BitMEX. We saw some reaction, but but not as much as we probably would have seen in 2017 or 2018. At least that's my suspicion. I guess we can start there. There's also the FCA um, crypto derivatives ban that I want to get into, and Ryan has done some reporting on that. But let's start with BitMEX. Were you surprised at the degree to which uh, the market kind of viewed this as a nothing burger? Not really. I think everyone in the business expected something to be coming down the lines at some stage. And the reality is it's a resilient marketplace now. And everyone knows some of the biggest players have been around for a while. They may or may not have been abiding by the increasing regulation you see globally. But more or less, everyone who's in the market for crypto today believes in it long term. So in the midst of that, you're going to have bumps in the road. What are those bumps in the roads going to be? You're going to have security problems. You're going to have um, potentially regulation, regulatory abuse cases, potentially people not abiding by what are now globally applicable FATF rules. But they're bumps in the road. I mean, this is we're 12 years into a brand new asset class. I mean, all the other asset classes have been around for centuries, if you think about it. So Bitcoin and crypto are competing in that space. And I think the owners of the assets, and I mean the coins and the tokens, they believe in the long-term future of the product. So look, there's going to be, there's going to be as I said, bumps in the road. But I think the whole of this year, you've seen the resilience of the asset class. Yeah, it's something I think we talked about last time. What do you mean by that? Like, what would you have expected to happen in the midst of this crisis that Bitcoin would have not responded well to or shouldn't have held up so well? Well, look, I think, first of all, it was telegraphed. So there's been rumors of investigations around various exchanges for the past two years. So it's been telegraphed. If you happen to trade on and hold positions or hold funds at that exchange, it probably wouldn't have come as a big surprise to you. Then, of course, you saw, you know, I don't know if it's true, I'm only reading press reports, but you see that maybe 20% of the assets were withdrawn in the first few days. I don't know where that is at today, but potentially you would have expected that to be 100% rather than 20%. But what invariably happens is the traders on those exchanges want to own the asset so they're just going to move it from one exchange to the other it's not like there's going to be a flight to quality it's not like they're in terms of to another asset class or a flight to cash that you often see so the crashes we saw in march in stocks for example you know everyone's buying let's go to treasuries let's go and buy gold let's go and buy bitcoin ultimately what happens here you're a bit worried about one of the players so you sell bitcoin but what do you do you buy bitcoin so, hey, market, unch, all you really see is a blip, perhaps on one exchange. And then there you go. Everyone's bid on another exchange. So potentially if this was systemic, it's very, it's very important to understand that, Frank. You know, this wasn't systemic risk. 
You know, someone flies a, finds a flaw in the white paper. Someone finds a flaw or a loophole on the blockchain. That's systemic, right? And you're gonna, assets can go to zero. If you like real asset market, so you look at oil, there was a systemic flaw there, right? In that they couldn't deliver it, same as gold, right? So there's a fulfill, fulfillment problem. That's why oil traded below zero. Because how do I get it around the place? That wasn't the case with this. It was one actor potentially undergoing some problems, some investigations. Everyone's innocent until proven guilty. That's not a systemic risk against the asset class. It happens in banking all the time. Let's face it. Just go and have a look at you know, the regulatory history in capital markets. Go and have a look at the well-documented liquidated companies over the past two decades, and you don't suddenly see this, you know, all those stocks going to zero and beyond. They bounce back. And that's exactly what's happened in the crypto market. You're seeing one large player undergoing a few issues, but it doesn't, it's not systemic. It doesn't damage the asset class long term. Hey, David, it's Ryan here. I'm going to jump in now and ask you a little bit about the um, crypto derivatives, if we could just sort of cross the pond and, and come back to sure. that issue, um, which we've spoken about a little bit, I know, already. Um, I, I guess the sort of the, the first reaction from people in the crypto space has been that this ban won't necessarily uh, prevent those who are determined to trade crypto derivatives from doing so. And the likely places that they'll go are either uh, to overseas venues or indeed to unregulated venues, um, including perhaps decentralized exchanges, which offer derivative products. And so mm -hmm. there's been this sort of warning issued by a number of people. And I, I think seems to remember you may have been one of them that uh, this is perhaps an instance of the FCA sort of burying their head in the sand and they're going to be a bit left in the dark as to how consumers behave when interacting with these products. But what I'm curious to sort of understand is what, what, what do you think the implication of that is? You know, if the FCA does indeed get left in the dark by taking this decision, does it hurt their ability to influence sort of global regulations going forwards? Potentially. Potentially. So, look, I'm a free market libertarian, so I don't like anything being banned. I don't mind it being regulated. I like there being a set of rules, um, loose, loose rules that we can self-regulate. Okay, So I work primarily in spot foreign exchange. It's not a financial instrument. So the instrument itself is not regulated. So effectively, we have to self-regulate, self-organize, um, as you'd expect in a libertarian environment. So I think banning potentially pushes the people you're trying to protect into less controlled jurisdictions where they're offered no protection. That said, remember, it's derivatives, right? So derivatives are tricky products. There's no prohibition on a spot product. If someone wants to own the crypto asset, they can own it today. The FCA had already limited leverage to retail customers um, to two to one. So not a hell of a lot of leverage. Now, okay. You've, it sounds it sounds bad, doesn't it? You've uh, you've banned derivatives, but actually you've just halved leverage, right? Hi, it's one to one now rather than two to one. That's all that's really happened. And what they're saying to everyone: you can own crypto assets, you just can't own it on leverage. 
And by the way, I mean, we have a duty in capital markets to protect retail investors. Let's be clear on that. You know, in the UK, I'm a regulated broker. Every client has to pass a suitability test. Of course they do. And they have to say, they have to say whether they understand the product or not. We have a duty of care. And frankly, anybody, any retail investor that's trading crypto assets on, say, 100 to 1 leverage needs to be protected. This is not a product to trade on 100 to 1 leverage, right? If you want to trade that on 100 to 1 leverage, you may as well go to the roulette table. It's a fair point. But I, I suppose what's interesting about the wording of the ban and the consultation that the FCA put out is kind of at the heart of their reasoning was that they sort of rejected the premise that Bitcoin has any inherent value and, and that retail investors, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, uh, excuse me, and that retail investors can value these assets. I mean, you clearly, I, I assume, would flatly disagree with that position. Um, and it's quite <laughs> a drastic position. Yeah, I mean, look, of course I disagree with them, but, you know, I've learned over 30 years that they're dodgy little good to disagree with regulators because they make the rules. You've just got to work within them. Um, to your earlier point, I think, yes, I'd love the UK to become a crypto hub. We'd love it. But if you look at Elmax Digital, I'm regulated in Gibraltar. Why am I regulated in Gibraltar? Well, the FCA didn't have a regulatory structure. And there are certain things that are confusing. You know, you see crypto futures um, being loosely regulated in the UK, but not the two to one CFD, for example. So I'd love the UK to be a hub for crypto. I think it's the future of capital markets, blockchain, DLT. And tokenization, digitization of everything is the future of all capital markets. So the city of London should lead. Unfortunately, they have less chance to lead in the retail segment, but maybe they can change their tune and lead in the wholesale segment. Only time will tell. Can we take a moment to sort of, this can be a question, I guess, aimed at both of you fine British gentlemen. How did we get to this point? My understanding from this side of the pond is that the UK has always kind of taken a more laissez-faire approach to trading regulation, at least from a retail perspective, right? Like here in the US, retail participants can't trade CFDs. They're allowed in the UK. What has sort of pushed the FCA to take this aggressive approach? What is going on? What was going on that sort of push their hand. Yeah. Watch this space is what I'd say. Look, the FCA, there's no doubt about it. The FCA has a history of being one of the most respected regulators in the world. So let's not dismiss that. You know, along with the regulators in the US, along with um, the MAS in Singapore, along with ASIC and the likes, it's one of the longest standing and most preeminent regulators in the world. So when they lead with something like this, they won't be the last. Hmm. They will not be the last, right? So there was a thing back in the day that the spread bet companies thought was great. It was called binary bets. Slowly but surely, they were outlawed across the world. And the UK led the way. And remember, they have a duty of care again to retail investors. So what does a retail investor or look like? Well, you know, it could be it could be your grandmother, right? It can be 
a working class family with their pension fund, there's a duty to protect them. Just the same as if you go and get a mortgage. Do you understand the risks? And I guess what they're saying in this instance is, we don't believe you understand the risks. So, no, sorry, I was just going to say, uh, just from a timeline standpoint, um, so the consultation came out, it first came about about a year ago in July, and it lasted much longer than they expected, partly because of the pandemic. Um, and they saw industry feedback, and I think they got 527 responses, 97% of which opposed the ban. But that isn't necessarily surprising because most of them were crypto businesses. Uh, <laughs> but, when, but coming to David's point about, you know, duty of care, so uh, the FCA put quite a lot of time, I think, into trying to uh, determine how much consumer harm the ban would prevent. And I think they found in the end that it would be between 19 million and about 100 million pounds uh, of consumer harm hmm. that they would prevent per year by enforcing this ban. You know, and it feels a little bit like sticking your finger in the air. But I suppose, you know, the danger that people have flagged to me in the course of reporting this out is, well, how much consumer harm will result from those who are determined to still trade in these products now migrating over into unregulated environments? And that is obviously a, a question that we, d we won't have the answer to for some time. But it's certainly something to watch, I think. Yeah, I'd agree with that. If you're a listener of The Scoop or follow The Block, then you know I am super excited about the future of crypto adoption, especially on the enterprise side. Our sponsor, Blockset, is not only helping to push development at the grassroots level with their multi-chain API, but also at the institutional level. Blockset is built by BRD, the first crypto wallet in the App Store from 2014, and one of the largest in the space today. They've taken the architecture and the knowledge they've gained over the past six years to create Blockset, a robust, reliable, and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Blockset is enabling banks and other major financial institutions to interface and build with crypto assets at light speed. See just how simple it is by visiting Blockset.com and sign up for a free account today. I want to get to David's point about this potentially being a death knell for um, crypto derivatives across the world. And as much as this could sort of push regulators maybe in the US, in Hong Kong, Singapore, to implement similar policy prescriptions. Frank, remember, I didn't death knell. If you want to use that word, that's up to you, but it's for the retail derivatives. Retail. That's it. Retail. Not derivatives. Remember, Elmax Digital, institutional crypto exchange. The institutional segment will go from strength to strength. As an industry, we must protect retail. I don't say ban it. What I do say is, if the FCA have come out and done this, they won't be the last. A lot of what is traded today is spot, right? So people want to own the asset. I think that's a good decision for percentages of your portfolio, right? We're just talking about retail derivatives. And there's in every asset class in the world, there are strict rules and strict suitability tests and know your customer tests before a retail investor can be allowed to invest with leverage. Slight tweaks around the globe, but it's not laissez-faire for retail 
go for your life and trade 100 to 1. As I've said previously, you know, we need to protect people who think it's a good idea to trade crypto at 100 to 1 leverage. That is a casino bet. I wonder if we're going to see a cascading effect of of these different exchanges. Whenever you come on the show, you refer to them as um, Fluzum or something or other. But Hoosium flips. Yeah. I wonder if we're <laughs> going to see a cascading effect from this where from either the FCA action or, or the BitMEX news um, of, of exchanges lowering that leverage from the 100 levels. I think some offer 125 or more. And maybe that introduces some more stability to the market, which would then increase appetite among institutional investors. I'd be curious. Um, I'd be curious to know in, in your conversations with with institutional investors if they see things like a hundred x leverage or this DeFi mania, and and that maybe even though they understand the value proposition of Bitcoin, all the peripheral stuff maybe serves as as a as a turnoff no not at all no. they like markets that move and they believe in the asset class right so institutional players like markets that move they like an element of stability they like a real market and actually what happens sometimes with the the hundred to one retail noise around the edges is that you create gaps now with gaps and um, with market dislocations also comes trading opportunity, obviously. But I think underlying they believe in the asset. And they, as I say, go back to everyone who's looking at this product and wants to hold it in their portfolios. Some of the biggest banks in the world, some of the biggest funds in the world, some of the biggest proprietary trading funds in the world. Um, they're in it for the long term. They're building out desks. So they believe in the underlying. And all of this, hundreds of one, there's no other word for it. 100 to 1 nonsense. It's just on the periphery. Okay. It's just on the periphery. They will operate in the real market because none of those institutions you mentioned would ever trade with that leverage. Right. They simply won't because they will never allow another exchange, platform, or venue to stop you out outside of their control. And this is what happens if you trade to 100 to 1 leverage. You allow another centralized body weirdly and the whole crypto world should be anonymous decentralized and trustless but you allow this centralized body offering you 101 to close it out for you because the markets move ten dollars okay institutions would never let that happen they use leverage but they use leverage they can control and that's one thing to remember about all this chat about leverage in the wholesale market there's no limit but you're self-limited uh, you and your provider are self-limited. And typically in the institutional space, you'd be looking at intraday, 10 to 1, 20 to 1 leverage, and maybe overnight, 5 to 1, 10 to 1. That's the reality of leverage. But, you know, they've had training um, to understand that. And they have balance sheets to understand and withstand those moves. I think if you seriously, if you look at the retail space, I, I think it's irresponsible to offer 100 to 1 leverage. Um, to poms and pops effectively. David, can we can we come back to sort of institutional update? So we we know that you at, um, at LMAX Digital work and have worked for some time quite closely with uh, sort of hedges and prop shops, family offices, etc. Yeah. Um, 
they account for most of the volume that goes through the exchange. I think that's fair to say at the moment. Correct. Um, but but you've also said for some time that you're talking uh, a lot. You know, you're in you're in discussions with bigger banks and asset managers, and it always seems that they're sort of yeah. just on the cusp uh, of of kind <laughs> of you know entering the market, but also uh, you know I suppose doing business with you uh, as one of the routes into the market. If you were to you know make a guess at when they when they will finally sort of arrive, what would be your guess? And as a second part of that question, what do you think is the the big barrier still that has to be overcome for those types of firms? You mentioned credit earlier, but perhaps it's that. Mm-hmm. Oh, don't forget mm-hmm. banking. Don't forget ABC. banking as well. ABC. Adoption, <laughs> banking and, adoption <laughs> banking and credit. So look, if I had to guess, I say this every year, look, I'm an optimist. Um, I think you'll see a significant bank or two move into the marketplace in 2021 it may all have been delayed by the the pandemic now what does moving into the marketplace mean they're investing real money a lot of time so real resource into blockchain technology crypto assets and digitization of capital markets now the likelihood is they'll leverage what they have to start with. And what they have is brand and balance sheet. So they will offer custodian services. They will disintermediate. Right? They'll provide credit for some of their better names. That's where they'll start. What you really want to see is, and what I will see as a stepping stone of success for the whole market, is when XYZ Bank says, we now own X hundred million of Bitcoin, right? So I expect to see that in the next 18 months. I really honestly do. And then the floodgates will open. What's preventing it right now? There's two things. One is internal approval. So mostly you've got multi-billion dollar companies, multi-billion dollar banks, awaiting internal board approval that means they've gone through the compliance department that means they've gone through their financial crime units and they're happy to own the asset to take delivery of a bitcoin for example and they're happy with the provenance of that coin and they've been through all of the um chain analysis elliptic style tracking of coins so they'll need that internal approval first And then the second bit is, in an ideal world, they'll be looking for external regulatory approval, if not outright regulation. So those are the two things that are are really stopping it. But what they will provide, funny enough, either which way, whether they own it for their own book or not, is that initially they'll provide that disintermediation. They'll provide the C of the ABC. They'll provide the credit to allow the funds and the asset managers that market access I talked about right at the very start of this uh, podcast. I was having a conversation last night, um, the one that you were teasing me about when we first hopped <laughs> on the phone. Don't worry, this will be the um, the second most interesting conversation. Oh, no, no, no Frank. I'm just kidding. I want to hang up right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I don't know if you know the guys at, at B2C2, but I was talking with Phil Jalipsy. And he was kind of giving, painting a picture of the Japanese market, which, you know, 
much to my chagrin, we don't we don't cover all that much here at the block, but but we really should because it's it's totally different and there's a lot of interesting dynamics. One of which is it's really hard to get your foot in the door, and, and maybe this is the case elsewhere, and that's kind of the question. It's really hard to get your foot in the door as a crypto native firm, as a crypto native service provider, in terms of luring in these new market participants. And I raised the same question that I raised earlier in the interview to you, to him last night, which is, are you in the process of, you know, seeing firms like Toyota or or the like, you know, as one generic Japanese company, um, uh, communicate interest in allocating uh, a portion of their balance sheet to Bitcoin? And he said, uh, uh, basically, it's very hard, even as a firm like B2C2 with, you know, all of their relationships and connectivity because they're not a brand, a name brand at this point to kind of get those deals across the board. They have SBI now, which they view as a firm that can kind of help them get those those relationships in place. But I'm curious if maybe that's another impediment. The fact that there are only so many firms operating in this market and they're still in very nascent stages that have the brand name like a Fidelity and like an LMAX, but even still, to your to your earlier point, they're not necessarily structured in the same way. They kind of borrow from the parent company in many respects, but you know, either have different insurances, as is the case with Fidelity, or even in LMAX's case, right, being regulated in a in a different jurisdiction. But I guess the question is, um, kind of going off on a bit of a tangent. Is that another impediment? The fact that there aren't enough like big name brands that can sort of draw in companies to from the sidelines? Two things on that, Frank. First of all, they are coming. They are trading. With that respect, and specifically looking in Japan, remember, LMAX Group has been in, been in Japan since 2012. And it's absolutely true that in that jurisdiction, perseverance and energy conquer all things. Um, there's no way you will open an account. There's no way you'll build a relationship in one year. I guarantee you, if, if you're it's your first stop in Japan, you won't open an account and you won't print a ticket. So it's not something for short-term opportunism, but it is something for long-term opportunity because when you trade with counterparts in that jurisdiction, they'll trade with you forever. So we're fortunate in that We've had a presence on the ground there for 12 years. We've got most of the major brokers and banks in the region already training, trading on LMAX group exchanges, so in the spot foreign exchange space. And guess what? 37% of all my customers in LMAX Digital trade another product with LMAX group. So that's important. Um but the second part of the, of the answer really is, if we believe in this asset class, Frank and Ryan, we need bigger names, right? We, the more names, the merrier. Of course, LMAX Digital wants to win. Of course, today we think we're the number one institutional cryptocurrency exchange by volume. But more names, bigger household names, bigger banks, bigger funds, bigger corporates entering the space is only good for this industry. It legitimizes the industry and it will only grow from there. But it takes time. 
you know, and it takes that persistence we talk about in the Japanese market. But I'm convinced that it's happening. And those big names you talk about, whether it be in Japan, whether it be in the United States, whether it be elsewhere in Asia Pacific, whether it be in Europe, right? The first place they'll trade will be with known brands. And in some cases, they're waiting for those known brands, such as the banks, to enter the space because they don't want to trade with, as I said, XYZ, who's, who've only been established in the crypto space, or XYZ exchange that's only been established in the crypto space. They want to trade with known SN or S&P rated institutions. But it's happening. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the flip side of that has been some so-called institutional exchanges have not done so well, despite kind of <laughs> some big name backers and and deep pockets. Um, so it's not always black and white. What a lot of these big brands have done is set up another sister company and co-invested with other big brands and or they just launched the derivative. They don't touch the asset. So I, they've tried to protect the mothership. That doesn't work. Because remember, you know, the world is littered with it in capital markets. Great software, great technology, great backers, deep pockets, big balance sheets, but no pipeline, no distribution. If you want to build an exchange business, you've got to have distribution. You know, remember that stat I just gave you, 37% of all my LMAX digital customers trade another asset class with LMAX Group. We've been around for a decade in foreign exchange. There's trust there, trust of the technology, trust of the brand, trust of the individuals. You cannot be arrogant enough to just set up another one tomorrow called Frank Exchange and expect that the world will come. If only it were that easy. David, what's that stat the other way around? What do you mean, what's that stat the other way around? What percentage of your LMAX Group customers trade on LMAX Digital? I just told you. 36. Oh, well, that's not I true. You told actually. me the other way around. Yeah, it is the other way around. I'm trying to think what it would be. Well, that's a good, uh, good question. Well, I'll put it this way if you imagine a third of my flow are banks and none of them are trading, none of them are trading crypto assets today, well, I've wiped that out for a start. But if I looked at, say, the non bank space, significant non bank space, that would be 50% of them. In terms of brokers, oh, look, I've got over 200 brokers worldwide, so I couldn't tell you how many of them are trading crypto in total. It's a pretty low percentage that would be trading uh, on LMAX Digital just because they don't offer the leveraged product or they can't operate seven days a week. That's a big blocker at the moment, you know, in coming from the traditional space. If you enter this, you have to change everything you do to operate seven days a week. What do I mean by that? You need customer services. You need operations. You need payments. You need settlement. You need technologists, infrastructure, networking. You need all of that seven days a week. You can't, get, you can't just say, oh, I've got a, a customer service desk on online Saturday, Sunday. No. You need your whole operation. So there's a, there's a big blocker there, but capital markets in total will be seven days a week within a decade. So... Um, and in many ways, the crypto asset class is leading on that front. Do those big banks and, and the other clients uh, across LMAX Group, you know, do they sometimes come in and just sort of set up a chat with you and, you know, your in-house sort of cryptography experts, cryptocurrency experts, and just 
talk about the space? Are they are some of them at that kind of exploratory stage? Certainly. Uh, then if you think of the brands that come in, there's a lot of fishing expeditions. Um, that's fair enough. You know, it starts off with a lot of fishing expeditions. And look, if I owned a uh, multi-billion dollar bank or I ran a multi-billion dollar bank, I'd want to do it all myself, right, to start with. So that's the starting point. And then they realize ultimately, like, okay, I need to engage with an exchange. I need to offer my customers access to reputable exchanges. And they go out and do that DD and then they'll connect. And the starting point for them is actually taking market data or establishing a connection, which is easy with LMAX Digital because it's the same connection they have um, for LMAX Group products. So I wouldn't say we're yet, we're yet in the, um, the chat room. They're not those type of uh, organizations, but certainly every week we have a brainstorm or two with institutions you'd see as significant in capital markets. I guess to close every podcast, it seems like we have to ask the the DeFi question. It was actually <laughs> one of the questions you proposed, David. I was surprised. Me? Um, yeah, or someone on your team. Someone in my team. Someone. There we go. We can blame Barbara. Um, okay. It's it was uh, how does how does um, business fit in within rather the DeFi landscape? Well, there's heaps of ways, right? So let's see how it plays out. I mean, DeFi is it DeFi today? <laughs> Defon tomorrow? I don't know, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, everyone wanted to talk about it for the last quarter. It might have been because Bitcoin, Yeah, <laughs> well, I like it, and uh, it might have been just because um, the Bitcoin market was relatively quiet or stable. Um, but look, I like the idea of DeFi. Certainly, I wonder how we play into it. The If you think about it very holistically, a whole bunch of decentralized exchanges, well, we could help with that. We could, we could own one or more if we wanted to, or we could lend technology to those exchanges. We could certainly contribute to the Oracle we could certainly contribute to the pricing. Whenever you moved into the tokenization of assets, that's certainly something we could do um, for all our products. You know, if you start to trade token crosses against other asset classes, then we could provide inputs into that. So that's useful. I think you're going to get into this space of, you know, all DeFi really is to me is... Fungible products across many exchanges where you allow the participant to be their own bank, right? So, and to engage in their own borrowing and lending, so to speak. So, it might be at some stage, somebody wants to turn it into one of these tokens. They want to turn it into to Bitcoin or to dollars. And I think listing those tokens, those credible tokens that have been verified, out there in DeFi world, um, it might be that's why you come to LMAX Digital. So we watch this space with, in with interest. Obviously, you know, the DeFi evangelists are going, oh, no, you know, not LMAX, you know, they're centralized. That's not really the way it is. I mean, as it is, am I centralized or decentralized? I run five exchanges globally. Um, that could be 55. So whether it's us or whether it's other people we help, I think it's an exciting space. And a message to the rest of capital markets and of course to my own group is that 
we've got to keep our eyes open because if this is the way people want to trade, then we need to be involved. And um, I think it's inevitable that capital markets will become tokenized and there'll be an element of decentralization that goes on. Let's face it, in the old days, if you wanted to buy a UK stock, you had to go to one place to buy it. Um, now, with interoperability in traditional capital markets, you can go to five, six, seven exchanges to do that. So it's inevitable. It's already happened in capital markets. It's inevitable in crypto. And everyone in the traditional asset classes needs to keep an eye on it, be aware of it, and hopefully engage with it and help it grow. We shall see. And we will be watching it grow certainly here at the block while we listen to Bruce, maybe some Billy Joel too. Um, <laughs> gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time. This was actually, this was definitely really interesting and it was nice to have a co-host this week. But David, always appreciate you coming on. And, um, yeah, good to talk to you, Frank. Good to talk to you, Ryan. And let's have, uh, I'll choose the music on the way out next time. You choose it on the way in, okay? <laughs> Perfect. Take it easy. Cheers. Cheers.